Fellowship family, it's great to have you with us. I haven't been here in two weeks, and I've missed you. I really have. I had an opportunity to get a little bit of time off and get replenished and ready to go through God's Word with you this morning. It's just an honor to be here and an honor to get before God's Word. We're going through a series right now called Nativity, and we're looking at not just the meaning of Christmas, but our approach to Jesus at this time. And you know, the New Testament scriptures have no place in them where it encourages the church to celebrate Christmas. (laughs) Sorry, I just canceled Christmas, didn't I? Some of your looks on your face are like that. No, it doesn't mention that. This is something that we don't even know the exact date in which Jesus was born. So why do we celebrate this? Because the New Testament talks a lot about the incarnation, the taking on flesh of Jesus. Fully God, fully man, born uh, in Bethlehem. And it's this whole picture of this, the person and work of Jesus is what the New Testament scriptures call us to. And so at this time of year, we have a time to redeem uh, the, what's happening in our culture. That this is primarily a consumeristic event. Uh, and to really move it into a place of, of worship. And so that's what we're trying to do with this. And with each week in this series, we're looking at uh, a different picture of the nativity scene. And today we're going to be looking at the wise men. Next week we'll be looking at the shepherds. And we're going to be looking at Joseph the weekend after that. And then on Christmas Eve, which I hope you'll come back for, Christmas Eve we'll be looking at Mary. And in each of these, we're looking at their approach to the birth of Christ. What, what was God doing and how, what can we learn from this in our approach to Christ, Christ as we celebrate Christmas? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew and Luke are the only gospel writers who mention the birth of Christ and the events around that. And so from these two passages, we're going to kind of alternate each week. Matthew this week, Luke next week, Matthew the week after that, and Luke on Christmas Eve. So as we look at this, we're going to be looking at the wise men and their approach. And you're going to see a key figure here. We're going to see King Herod. In Matthew chapter 2, it says this. Now after... Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. This happened actually two years, two to two and a half years after after the birth of Christ. So we're making our way from the outside, from the past tense in. And when Herod in verse 3 says, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, 
they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The point I want us to think through as we just process this narrative of the birth of Christ is this. Within every human heart, there is a throne. On the throne, physically, in the day that Jesus was born, was Herod the Great. What do we know about Herod the Great? It's not just mentioned in scriptures, but the, the ancient historian Josephus wrote a lot about Herod and uh, from a Jewish perspective. And most of what we have about Herod is written by Josephus. There's a book written off of what Josephus has written, and it's called Herod the Great by Norman Gelb. And the subtitle is really one that we can know a lot about. It says, Statesman, Visionary, Tyrant. That's kind of the vision or that we see of Herod the Great in this passage in Matthew chapter 2. But what do we know? You know, right after in history, in ancient history, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, Cleopatra, after they fell from leadership and after they died, uh, Herod, who had aligned himself with them, had to run and make his case before Octavian. And what he did is he took his wife and her family and his family and he stored them up in this, this bastion of strength in the middle of nowhere in Israel right now. It's called Masada. And Masada is built up on this high cliff overlooking the Dead Sea. And Masada, really, it's a fascinating place. If you ever travel to Israel, you need to go and see Masada because you just wonder, how in the world did they get those things up here to build what they built up here? It's this huge palace of Herod in the middle of nowhere. And by putting and stowing his family up there, they would be safe as he ran to Octavian to plead the case. Look, I was loyal. I'm a faithful servant. I can be faithful to Rome. Make me leader over Judea. The thing that Herod did that we kind of get a little bit more on his character is his wife, the one he loved the most, Miriam was her name. She was a beautiful woman, and he gave this instruction to his guards. He said, look, if I don't come back, if I don't make it through going to see Octavian, hey, kill her. (laughs) Kill her. Yeah, because he didn't want any other man loving his wife. And unfortunately, that guard told her about this. And that never works well. That never works well. And she kind of uh, limited herself from him when he returned because that was the order. And so uh, he goes and he makes the case. And sure enough, Rome, the Senate, and Octavian say, you shall be king of the Jews. That was his title, king of the Jews. Now, that really wasn't something that uh, that the Jews were comfortable with. They didn't like him. They never thought that he should, he should be king. None of the chief priests liked him. Actually, he killed chief priests and the Sanhedrin, leaders of the Sanhedrin who disagreed with him. And he put his leaders in there and established his chief priests. So they didn't like him. And by the way, he wasn't even Jewish. So why would he be their king? And they were kind of annoyed with him. They didn't like him, even though he did so much for them in his perspective. He was an incredible 
builder. Some of the things that he built, we see. This is Caesarea by the Sea, a city that he made in honor of Caesar Augustus. And those ruins still stand today. One of the things he did here in in Caesarea by the Sea is he actually built his own harbor. Most harbors in that day were natural formations that were cliffs coming out that would keep the the ships safe. But here he went out 1,800 feet out into the Mediterranean Sea. And some of those... Some of those breakwaters were 200 feet wide and had buildings on them. They put pillars out there with an entrance into them of only 60 feet that the ships had to navigate in. And it became a major trade route. And so wealth and prosperity happened in this whole region because he built this in memory of Caesar Augustus. It also kept Caesar happy. But he didn't just think about Caesar and Rome. He also thought about the Jews that he was king over. And in Jerusalem, he built this fantastic mount, this temple mount, covering 36 acres in Jerusalem. And he flattened it, and he allowed the Jews and funded them to build their temple there. More, very beautiful place. But to this day, we can travel to those places, and we can still see his work. Those larger stones in the, in the temple mount, in that wall there, those were ones that Herod's men laid. And then even at the Wailing Wall, if you go there, those larger stones right there are the ones that Herod's men built. And if you go, what we don't realize is that when you go to Israel, the Wailing Wall is only about a third of the actual wall. Two-thirds of that wall was below what we see right here. And so you can take a tour down into the tunnels and go down to see some of those stones that were built for the Temple Mount. And you will see, like one I saw, was 16 feet high, and it was 45 feet long, over 50 tons, and they had no machines, no engines to do that. So just an incredible leader. Architects today who've traveled and see this are just astounded that in the first century or even B.C. that, that a leader could build like this. He was known throughout the land as an incredible visionary and construction. And even outside of this Judean area, he was a builder. And so he was respected by Rome, but my goodness, he was feared by people. Uh, he was a brutal and ruthless um, vindictive, dangerously high-strung tyrant. He had a bodyguard posse of 2,000 troops. He had 10, maybe some historians say 11 wives. When he accused his wife Miriam, the one he loved the most, of unfaithfulness, he was such a bully that even her mom turned on her and said that she was unfaithful, even though it was never proven she was unfaithful. And he had her executed. He had her mother-in-law executed. He had two of her brothers executed. And two of his naturally born sons executed. There was never a day in Herod's reign where someone wasn't dying. He was a tyrant. And Caesar Augustus even said this about Herod. He said, since Jews don't eat pork, he said he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Because at least he'd be safe. So it's no surprise that when wise men or magi from the east, those who looked for the signs of the times, read the prophecy in the heavens and came to Jerusalem and they sought an audience from Herod when they inquired, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in when it rose and we have come to worship him. There's no doubt when you know his history of what this was going to produce. Where is he 
Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I am the king of the Jews. Roman, Roman authority told me I'm king of the Jews. No, no, Kevin, not you. We're looking for the king. I mean, Elvis hadn't even been born yet, and they were looking for a king. But it wasn't just where is the king. They were also saying we have come to worship him. Whoa, that was another hit to the ego of Herod. We've come to bow down and be reverent for him. Now, at no point in this passage does it say how many wise men there were. We only see their gifts that they bought, right? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. So we think, oh, there's three guys because three guys would carry that all that distance. And only, no, no, there's probably more than three. And they never traveled alone. They probably even had a security detail with them. So this is a pretty good group of people. We need to look at the scriptures to inform us, but we can't put 40 little figurines around our nativity scenes, right? So we just settle for three. And so they appeared, and Herod just went ballistic. Now think about this. There's a point there. Within every human heart, there's a throne. These wise men go into the house when they finally go to Bethlehem and they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures. They offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and you see an approach to Jesus that's different than Herod. One that isn't insecure, one that isn't a tyrant, but one that's in worship and, and in reverence and bringing him glory and giving him their gifts of what's worthy. See, on one hand, our perspective 2,000 years later finds it really silly that the most powerful king in the region was most scared of the birth of a little bitty, vulnerable, powerless-looking baby. In Bethlehem, of all places, it was like the ghetto. There were probably three or 400 people, not, not hundreds of thousands of people, was off the map. But when this hit Herod, he couldn't handle it. And he went to Bethlehem and he ordered the killing of all little boys that were around the age of Jesus. Because he ascertained secretly with the wise men, when did you first see that? And he knew, he, he, that was all intentional. He wanted to eradicate any threat to the throne. Whether it be his brother, or his son, or his wife, his mother-in-law, or a little baby off the grid in the margins, in the remote areas of Bethlehem. You know, I talk to a lot of people about this passage and they go, I just don't get it. Why would God allow this? The bringing in of his son. Why would he allow all those other families to deal with the tragedy, the loss of their children? I've heard other people, skeptics of, of history, who go, no, how in the world? We don't even read about this in the scriptures or even in any other types of history that children were killed around Bethlehem. And if you look about the number, it was probably anywhere from 12 to 20 little boys were killed. And in a tyrant who every day someone was being executed, it was just forgotten. It was just forgotten. This just kind of happens here. So it didn't make the front page of the Jerusalem Post. <laughs> and it also, if you take a look at it, I don't know why God chose this way. But one thing we see about Jesus is that he starts confronting power structures from the moment he was born. 
And when we look around us and we look at the reality of what Jesus confronts in our own dark hearts and in, the own, in our own dark world, we're going to see that there is evil around us. And when evil is ruling, tragedy happens. And so what we need to realize is what God came to confront with Jesus. That God brought his son in the world to be light in darkness and to confront the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome him. It shines in the darkness. And so he's called, we're called to think about this, not just in the reality of why God did it, but what he did and what he was doing when he did it. Within every human heart, there is a throne. Before we walk away from Herod, I just want to just mention, it's easy to disassociate ourselves from him. He's the bad guy. We don't want to be bad. Don't be like Herod. Let's pray. We'll go home. (laughs) But before we move so quickly, I want us to just look in the mirror. There might be a little bit of Herod in each of us. Something that fights for control, something that's threatened when Jesus comes along, whether it's being threatened because of belief or faith or threatened because of what it looks like to follow Jesus, of stepping down from ourselves, the threat of loss, the threat of not being who we think we could become without him, the threat of being better off without Jesus. That it hits our hearts. Because within each of our hearts, there is a throne, and Jesus will confront that throne. We have to come to the end of ourselves to recognize that there is a king that was born in Bethlehem. Think about the little threat to your throne. What happens with your throne when, when you miss an expectation from a boss or a spouse? Think about the threat of a relationship not working and how everything within you becomes troubled. Think about the threat of not having enough or not being enough. Think about the threat of your position being eliminated. What we need to realize about this throne is that Jesus was meant to rule on this throne in each of our hearts. And there's only one seat on the throne of your life. I used to think that I could have Jesus and my way. I used to think that Jesus was here to make all my wildest dreams come true. The reality is, is when he's on the throne, it's his way. It's his way. It's not me accommodating Christ. It's me accommodating my life to be around the person and work of Christ. It can't be about me. And that one seat is something that we need to realize. It's either going to be Christ ruling or it's going to be what we call in our present day culture, self-ruled life. The life that says, I can do it on my own. The life that's better, that feels it's better off with, with yourself and with your direction and with your accomplishments than it ever would be to have God or Jesus on the throne of our lives. There's only one seat on the throne of our lives. And the reality of that is that there's, we can buy into this lie that we can lead our lives, that we can be in control. But here's what I've learned about the throne something's always leading me. Something's always leading me, always. Something's always ruling me. And what it is that's ruling me will show me who's on that throne. I think it's important to realize that when we think about the throne of our lives, that what we're seeking determines what I'll find and what I'll follow. Let's talk about this. And I just want to share with you my own reality My own reality is that if Jesus isn't on the throne of my life, I'm going to be pursuing 
I'm going to be seeking after acceptance. I love to be liked. But here's what I found when I've loved to be liked, is that fitting in always requires adjustments. Adjustments away from who Christ sees me as and who I'm called to be in Christ. Adjustments to get people to like me more. When Christ isn't on my throne, I'm going to be usually moved more towards materialism, of having one more thing, of having one more thing that makes me feel good about life or that pacifies a a direction in my life. To buy one more thing, to upgrade when it feel, when I feel like things are wearing out. And the problem that I found when I pursue materialism is there's always another gadget out there. And there's always someone who has more. When Jesus is not on my throne, I'm going to be led towards applause and appreciation. And what I found when I pursue that is I find that the spotlight is always moving. It's always moving. And that leaves me in the shadows. I've had, without Jesus on my throne, I've, I've tried not to mess up ruling me. I don't know if you've ever done that. Just don't mess up. Joe, pastor's on the front page for bad things. That never is good, so don't mess up. <laughs> That's a lousy vision for life. That lousy vision for life will move me into sin management, that I can do some things as long as it's not as bad as that, rather than a heart that is sold out and seeking hard after the righteousness and the goodness and the love of Jesus. And then I've also, when Jesus hasn't been on the phone, on the throne, it's, it's been an issue with respect. I've wanted to find respect and get respect, get people to respect me. And here's what I found. Respect is subjective. You respect some people and you don't respect other people. But that changes from individual to individual. My life is always wondering, do I have enough respect? And that's why we have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to realize that the path forward begins when we step away from ruling on the throne and we allow Christ to be our king. The nativity presents us with two options. Our kingdom or God's kingdom. Other things or the one and only to be on our throne. Now we're here to approach uh, the throne of Jesus like the wise men did. To seek to find the king, and when we find, to follow him. The approach of the wise men is going to teach us how to live each day under the authority and the lordship of Jesus. To seek him, to find him, and to follow him. This really fits in nicely, not just with the scriptures, but with why we exist as a church. Because Fellowship Bible Church is here to help people find and follow Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, we want you to know him. And once you know him, we want you to follow him. Because we believe that Jesus sets our souls free. He doesn't, he's not just an add-on to make our lives more pleasurable, more joyful, so that we can sleep at night. He is the someone that, who is the Lord of our lives, who rules on our thrones, and teaches us how to live. This Jesus... We are meant to approach, to seek after him and to find him and to keep him on the throne of our lives. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, the way of the wise men can teach us how to do this. The first one is this. We need to seek humility over power. 
Think about how God presented his son, Jesus, God in the flesh to the world. He didn't fanfare him in Rome. He didn't have this royal, royal appearance with all this lineage that he would bring in. Actually, if you want to see a really humble lineage, read Matthew chapter 1. And you'll see in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of all this sin, God brought forth his son, Jesus, through a family, through a family, his descendants. It may be interesting to read it, and if you don't know the scriptures and you read Matthew 1, you're going, what, who, where? (laughs) But if you can trace it and you can look at different people that God used to bring about his son, you'll see that the the way of God is humble. We would think that he would be born in a power structure so that his rule and his reign on earth would have an ease to it, be comfortable, have power and position. But what do we see? We see him off in the margins of Bethlehem, about five miles south of Jerusalem where Herod was, and we don't hear much. Mary, when she had Jesus, was an unwed mother. Think about even in our world, the marginalization that happens with unwed mothers. And then his father. His father, the Greek word for his father was called technon, which literally meant worker, worker. It was uh, Western civilization that made him a carpenter. But most of the materials that were used to build homes and structures in that day were stone. So you're talking about a stonemason. You ever hang out with a stonemason? <laughs> Some of you are stonemasons. And you have a whole new vocabulary to teach to the rest of us, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a rough group of guys. And yet, off, off this group is the, is the target. It's the target of the nativity, of bringing the most powerful individual who's ever been brought into this world into being. Into this world, God used a very humble way. It's the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus to follow him is the way down. It's not the way up. It's the way forward is the way stepping down from ourselves to make him greater in our lives. We can't be about power, position, perks, privilege, If we're going to be following Jesus. And his birth is a picture of that. Think with me. What's the way out of chaos? What's the way out of of conflict in your life? What's the way out of of a generational sin that's been passed down to you? What's the way out of a broken marriage? What's the way out of a broken relationship with your child? It's not more power. It's rarely, and one more thing, you did this wrong today. You never do this. You always, that rarely brings resolution to a conflict. What's the way out? Humility. Humility. Stepping down, forgiving, calling it, confessing it, and stepping away from it. The way out is humility because it's the way of Jesus in leadership. Even when God has given you power in leadership, the way for you to lead is not through power. It's not through you showing your position and you, you know, threatening. It's the way of humility. Like Jesus, who did not take equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant And he made himself obedient, even to the point of death, death on the cross. 
Therefore, God, what? He glorified him. He raised him and he set him at the throne so that at, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Seek humility over power. Every one of us who knows Jesus, every one of us who's trusted in Jesus had to have a moment in time where go, I can't save myself. Every one of us who came to Jesus had to say, I can't be good enough. I can be better than that person. And we all have that person in our lives. But that person is not perfection. And we aren't perfection. None of us in here are perfect. If you don't believe me, talk to your friends. Talk to your spouse. We're not perfect. Only Jesus is. There's no way we can be good enough. We all have to humble ourselves. We have to, have to humble even our way. That when we come to Jesus, we have to say, it's no longer going to be my way. It's your way for me. Like I said, our culture absolutely loves to be in control. And when you come to Jesus, you have to give up control to him. Everything with Jesus is through humility, not power. Secondly, we need to seek reverence over respect. When the wise men came to Herod and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star and we've come to worship him. What happened? It says he became deeply troubled, which literally means the Greek word used there. It's like he became nauseous because it upset him so much. And then it says something about everyone around him. It says, and all of Jerusalem with him. Why is that? Because when you're a bully and you're upset and you're angry, everyone around you gets nervous. Everyone around you gets nervous. And you may not see it, but here's a point. You know who's on your throne when something doesn't go your way and the people around you are nervous. You know that Herod's on your throne. When you get angry and you get frustrated and and the pain and the hurt that you cause on the people around you. And that's that desire to be respected. We have an insatiable desire apart from Christ to just be respected, to be valued, to be appreciated. And when that's not, look out, look out. That's how I know when I'm ruling on my throne is how much it affects me when someone doesn't respect me. How much I lose sleep, how much I process, how much I try to win the approval or favor. That's Herod on my throne. That's Herod on my throne. That's not Jesus. The wise men, when they came to Jesus, they bowed down and they worshiped him. You can have a good relationship with a friend, but you don't want to go worshiping a friend. But what they did is they worshiped him and they laid their lives before him and they gave him their wealth. And it's interesting, as you just trace, the gifts of the wise men became the provision for Joseph and Mary as they escaped to Egypt. And those years of being without a people and being away from home, those gifts were all a part of God's provision for the family he put Jesus in. And it's the whole picture of reverence over respect. I've got to be about making the name of God and making the name of Jesus better and greater than I do myself. And when we come to Jesus, it's no longer going to be about my name. If people end with you, then, then what happens after you? We have to move people to an eternal God in an eternal, with an eternal kingdom rather than just ourselves. 
And finally, we need to seek recognizing over recognition. Recognizing over recognition. What happens when you make all the plans, put in all the hard work, and pull off the event, even reach the goal, but no one sees it? And no one says thank you. This is, this is really getting in touch when Herod's on your throne because you feel loss. You feel unappreciated. This longing within us to be recognized as significant, important, irreplaceable, included is something, it, it can be overt, but most of the time we keep it to ourselves and it just kind of rots within us. The problem is, though, when we pursue recognition over recognizing Jesus, when we pursue personal recognition, look out. We were never meant to be kings. We were never meant to be on that throne. And it's never going to be enough to satisfy your soul. Our lives are set free, though, when we start recognizing who Jesus is with our lives. And then we respond to who he is and recognize others the way he's recognized us. So this whole picture that Matthew is drawing for us is really to be a call away from power and respect and recognition. And it's a call into the humility of God. It's called into revering him for his glory. And it's called for recognizing and making known the person and the work of Jesus. By the way, just because there's two ways to approach Christ, Herod and, and, and Christ and, and, and the wise men, uh, humility or power, what happened to Herod? Matthew's real intentional on this. Read Matthew chapter 2. Three places. Herod died. Herod is dead. Herod died. Three times he says it because Matthew is bringing out this whole picture of look at which kingdom lasts forever. And we haven't even gotten past one chapter and Herod dies. The most powerful person in the region, the most successful from an outside world perspective person is over. It's over. But Jesus lives on. Jesus lives on. This king of Judea is gone. And his kingdom unravels within a few generations. But Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. This kingdom that was temporary of Herod is over. The kingdom of God through Jesus is eternal forever and ever. Amen. You get this picture of whose power, of whose kingdom you want to live your life for. So I just ask you, whose kingdom do you want to be about? Whose king do you want on the throne of your lives? It's my prayer that as we celebrate, as we look at just those who are not just in this place, but around us in any nativity scene we see, whether it's in our houses or blown up on someone's front yard, (laughs) that we humble ourselves and recognize it's not about my kingdom. It's about the kingdom of Jesus. Would you stand with me and let's commit to this as we leave this place. Father, in a minute, you're going to send us out into this world, into a kingdom of darkness, and you're going to give us the opportunity to reflect the kingdom of light through your son, Jesus. And the only way that's going to happen is if he's ruling on our throne. So Lord, humble our hearts so that we would make our lives more about you than ourselves. 
and, and, and with others, more about recognizing you and them as you see them and as you are. And may we be people who advance your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's in the name of Jesus and for his glory that we pray. Amen.